Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. God, we got to give you praises. We got to give you praises because despite the, the fact we know we are on a battlefield, and there's coming a day when both sides are going to look at us and, and hate us. Not just, not just one or the other. Because, because we're on the battlefield for you, not for anybody else, not for any other thing. And God, despite that fact, you know, we know you are watching over. You're watching over us, our kids, Lord, uh, every opportunity you've given us. We have the accountability. We have the responsibility to follow through on, but you are watching over to give us what we need and to do with us what you want. And so, Father, we pray you'd continue to show us that even today as we look in the study in Zechariah together. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Lord's presence, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the most exciting book in your Bible because Zechariah is the book of revelation of the Old Testament. And for that reason, and because God is multivalent when he speaks, in other words, in a given paragraph, there are multiple simultaneous applications. And because of that, people who do not believe the Bible like we do cannot understand it. And so the first thing you got to remember, like the late Pastor Mark Trotter used to say, context is king. So here's our thesis for today's study. All the minor prophets have one of three future contexts. Now we know that there's a past historical application but boy, a lot of the things said here didn't happen in history, not at all, and didn't even refer to that historical time. There is an inspirational application. That's my job as pastor to be able to give you that out of this book today. But in terms of future application, it's either going to be the tribulation, which will last seven years, the second advent, which is one day we come back with Jesus, or the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. So the tribulation is going to be that time after the rapture of the church, after we are caught up to be with Christ, at 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says will happen. And since the church is gone, then God returns to dealing with his people Israel. Paul explains this, Romans 9 verse 4, Romans 11 verses 25 to 27. And because God is going to use Israel as the redemption of the world... Romans 11, verses 12 and 15. Then for those seven years, the Antichrist is going to be out to completely destroy them because if he can destroy them, he can wreck God's plan. We've already seen how this can be done in modern times. The Holocaust, World War II, Adolf Hitler, Nazis. I mean, we've seen exactly. Okay, that was the dry run. Ah, that was a dress rehearsal. It didn't work. Not only did it not work, but then in 1948, God got the Jews back in their own land. State of Israel was born. So now you know he's going to have it in for them. And uh, so the second advent, at the second coming, we come back with Jesus. And those Christians who have died Prior to the rapture, he brings with him. And the rest of us who were raptured and taken off this planet before the tribulation, caught up with them, we come back with them. So we come back with Jesus. We usher in the kingdom of heaven, 
the thousand-year reign of Christ called the millennium. So what do we do with that? What do we do then? I mean, what are we supposed to do right now? What do we do in the meantime? Well, let's get our orders, since we're on the battlefield for the Lord. Let's get our orders from Zechariah. There are basically two types of leadership, two kinds of motivation. If you've ever played sports, <coughs> had different teams and different coaches, then you know that some of them are aggressive, highly charged, very emotional style. It appeals to your will. Uh, some of them are less emotional. They're kind of, kind of more inspiring, and they appeal to your conscience. So the first kind relies on fear and demand and guilt and sometimes even public embarrassment. And that was Nehemiah, for example. The second time is more quiet and cheerleading. And it doesn't use a stick. It holds out a carrot like Micah. And frankly, it often takes both types in order to get the job done. So the first type, I see you're not getting this. Let me give you an illustration. The first type is illustrated by Vince Lombardi. John Madden or Bear Bryant. That is the coach who clobbers his players if they make a mistake. Okay, so he's, he's going to call you out of the game. He's going to go over with his clipboard and bang on your helmet. Make sure you get the message. <coughs> then on the, the other hand, there is Tom Landry. And be the last two minutes of Super Bowl. They're down by six. They got the ball on the 30-yard line. He's he looks like he's watching somebody put gas in his car. <laughs> or Andy Reid. I mean, coaches like that might use an unheard of four-letter word for their players, like love. So when you think of a prophet, you automatically think of Amos or John the Baptist and flashing like lightning and rebuking like thunder and shaming and scolding and talking about gloom, doom, and judgment. But then there's Jeremiah. He wrote a whole book in tears. Or Zechariah, who is more of a poet than a prophetic personality. He is a man out to appeal to your conscience instead of your emotions. So look at verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. <clears throat> Compare that with Nehemiah 12.4, and you find out that Zechariah is the son of a priest as well as the son of a prophet. And he has an interesting name because Zechariah means God remembers. And the first six verses of introduction, they're not followed by a scathing diatribe. They are followed by seven night visions in the first six chapters, and then some verbal words, chapters 7 and 8. Then there's this three-chapter interlude where we see the people's vanity. And finally, the last section of the book paints this magnificent, full-featured portrait of the Messiah who through suffering finally comes to be crowned. Since God is remembering Israel, then Zechariah, just like John in the book of Revelation, is the great unveiler. Because here's our first point for study. Within Zechariah, you're able to see the reality that was obscured by adversity. 
Now, let me open a window on that word. I was watching the news while I was getting ready this morning. They had one segment talks about a man who is an artist that will take a painting like the Mona Lisa and make it 3D. And he makes the, the 2D painting and he turns it into 3D artwork so that people who are blind can put their hands on that art and they can see it. They can put their hands on the Mona Lisa and say, oh, good smile. So the adversity of blindness is overcome. And that's what Zechariah is doing for us. That's what these visions will do for us. Our, our human natural observation is limited to the sight of our eyes and the hearing of our ears, and that is the great flaw. Okay, all you students, listen to me. That is the flaw of the scientific method. If, you, if all you use is that, if it's used alone, that's the flaw because that's all you've got is what comes to your senses and yet that's not all there is. So the peril of the Christian living in America today is to make decisions based on boxing God out. And then you run up against God's waking reality because truth is defined for you, not by your senses, but by what is said in God's word. So Zechariah gives you two levels of revelation. And I I almost made my doctoral dissertation on the four different learning styles of adult learners and how that meshes with expository preaching. So my doctorate's in expository preaching. Not that I'm any good at it. I'm just saying I studied it. And so I, the thought was, uh, how can I show that my preaching is going to be able to communicate to all four different learning styles? So those who learn by lecture, but then that's maybe not necessarily even the majority, uh, those who learn by looking, those who learn by hearing and somebody telling uh, them, and those who actually have to get hands-on and they have to do it themselves. How am I going to accomplish that? And so we've given two levels of revelation from Zechariah for your spiritual sense of sight and sound. So we're going to Branson today because Zechariah gives visions and records voices and there's a visual parable with a verbal explanation. And then there's voices that follow the visions in chapters 7 and 8. So the visions let you see the recompense. That means the equivalent compensation, the justice, the equity of the reward. Hebrews 11 verse 26. I don't know if it's exactly the return on the investment because your return might be much greater. This isn't that. This is just the evenness. The full compensation for suffering, reproach with Christ. But then the voices, they're going to tell you about the greater riches in Christ. So if you're not walking in the Spirit, you may have an eye problem today. Get your vision correction from the Word of God and you will see the strength to endure. You will respect the reward instead of regarding the reproach. So let's start with a word from the introduction. Chapter 1, verse 3, you'll notice that the title Lord of Hosts is repeated three times in that one verse. You never find that name for God in the books of Moses. I mean, look, look in Joshua and Judges, you never see it appear. First place it occurs is 1 Samuel, and that's the book that records Israel's transition from a theocracy, 
which is ruled by God, to a monarchy, which is ruled by a human king. So basically, it's the story of how God's people turn from God to a human form of government like the nations surrounding them. So it was a name born in Israel's rebellion. It rarely occurs in the historical books. But when you hit the prophets, it is constant. I mean, Isaiah employs it repeatedly, as does Jeremiah. Zechariah uses it most of all 53 times in just 14 chapters. So what does it mean? Well, hosts in the Bible are stars, angels, Israel, and the armies of the nations. So ultimately, it means the armies that the Lord is is going to be captain over the legions of both angels and humanity. So in this threefold use of that title here in verse 3, Zechariah reveals three facts to your faith. Look, verse 3, Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the first fact is this, God has spoken his will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. As a matter of fact, and this is our second point for study, if you follow the word of God, you're walking in the spirit. It is possible for you to know God's will because God has given you his word. And it's possible to walk in God's spirit because his spirit always answers to his true word. And that's illustrated in the very next verse, verse 4, Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, they did not hearken unto me, saith the Lord. So the captains of the armies of the universe has given you some orders, since you're on the battlefield for the Lord. And they're contained in the words of God's book called the Holy Bible. And we have them in our language in the King James Version. So, verse 3, second, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts. The first truth Zechariah reveals is that God is speaking to you. God has spoken to us in English and we have it. For 290 years, 1611 to 1901, it was the only words of God we had in English in America. And boy, when they started something after that, it is not God's words. So God's speaking to you. The second truth is that the, it gives us the purpose of Christ's first coming. God is calling humanity back into fellowship and forgiveness with him because he's providing a way for you to turn and return through the blood of his son, Jesus the Nazarene. In chapter 3, turn there now, keep your finger here, but look in chapter 3, Zechariah's vision of Joshua the high priest. Joshua is the Old Testament name for the Greek New Testament name Jesus. Synonyms, Joshua, Jesus. And this title, Lord of Hosts, is again linked to the announcement of the way that God has made for you to be able to turn to him. Look at verse 8. Hear now 
O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And notice how that word is in all capital letters in a King James Bible. Not so in the Christian Standard Version. Not so in the English Standard Version. Not so in the New American Standard Version. Not so in the New International Version. But it is in a King James Bible because it is a title of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus, Joshua, was called the Nazarene, Joshua the branch. And Jeremiah prophesied about this 80 years before. Look at it on your handout, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Now that is a miracle because I cut off the stock. I got so fed up with Coniah, with Jeconiah, I pronounced a curse on everybody after him. He was a descendant of David, and then I came in and cursed that line because of, of him, of Coniah. And nobody after him was going to sit on the throne. Now how am I going to fulfill my promises to David? I cut off the stock. I cut down the ancestry tree. Oh, I know how I'll do it. And I'll do it righteously. There's going to be a branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. I got this, you don't know yet, but I got this figured out between you, me, and Isaiah. We got this all figured out. I'm going to make a virgin conceive. And she'll be from that line, but she'll be a virgin. And she won't be through Solomon. She will have come through Nathan. Oh, I got this all figured And then I'm going to make her marry a man who is actually through Solomon. It'll be all right. And then a king shall reign and prosper, execute judgment, justice in the earth. That is the millennial reign. That is the kingdom that we inherit after, at the judgment seat, we get our crowns if you get one. The third time that the title Lord of Hosts is used is at the end of this verse. And I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of Hosts. You turn unto me, I'll turn unto you. Not only does God's word make his will known to you, not only did he come to make it so that you could turn to him today, but he is coming back again. I will turn, I will return to you, saith the Lord. And those are only three key phrases. But around those phrases, the whole outline of the book of Zechariah is built I think we gave this to you on your a chart, maybe on your handout. God reveals his will in his word. That's the visions and voices, chapters 1 to 8. Then the branch of David is sent at his first coming, chapters 9 to 11. But Jesus will come to earth again. Oh, that it were today. Chapters 12 to 14. So the power of the Lord of hosts is illustrated in the visions, everyone singly, individually. But the purpose of the Lord of hosts is illustrated whenever you take each one sequentially or really cumulatively. Because that is the way the power of the Holy Spirit works in your life. It, it is an accumulated power. And I, and, I, and I know you, I see you, and I know I, you know, some of you, I know I see you. Once in a while, and you come on a Sunday and you hear me talk about 
Spirit of God answering to the Word of God, and you're going to try that out that week, and it seems like it doesn't work for you, and then then we may not see you for a few weeks hence uh, down the road, and you say, well, you know, he's, that's just rhetoric. He's just saying that. It just, it just doesn't work. No, no, you missed it, baby Baba. Harry Potter is a myth. Um, nobody's power works like that, not even the devil's, except for Jesus and for us when we come back, then it'll work like that. But no, God's power doesn't work like that. It's an accumulated power after your consistent faith response to it over time so that that accumulating power eventually makes you overcome. If you don't accumulate it, that's on you, baby Baba. Power is right there. The Word of God is still good. Everything I'm saying about it is true. It will happen for you, but you've got to get it and do it like that. It is not medicine. It is vitamin. Watch, verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were their red horses speckled and white. So this is a picture of a shady place in a valley, valley and men on horses. Now they will know at that time that they are in the valley of the shadow of death because it's a tribulation. Remember, I mean, in terms of future context, it's only tribulation, second coming, or millennium. So they will know they're in the valley. What they will not see until they read this vision is the angelic beings who are watching over them. So we've got the angelic hosts on both sides represented by horsemen. Verse 18. Then lifted I up mine eyes and saw, behold, four horns. Behold, I saw four horns. Now, and they didn't honk. They're not that, not that type of horns. Verse 20, and the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spake, saying, these are the horns, the horns of the horns which are scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. 2,000 years, that was the case. These are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah. See, this is what Jesus, this is what was behind Jesus being born as a carpenter and becoming a carpenter. I know we look at it and say, oh, carpenter, I mean, woodwork. I mean, that's so delicate and so useful. No, no. The second vision is of the Gentile armies opposing the people of God for 2,000 years, but then eventually remobilizing in the valley of Armageddon at the end. And Jesus comes back. I mean, even Daniel told you there are four Gentile world powers that are going to scatter the Jews. They won't even lift up their head anymore. But wait, because we also see in this vision the weapon that God has formed for their destruction. Because when it comes to that moment, they remobilize. In the tribulation, God's carpenters come down to split, to saw, and to sand them down to dust. Just call me Karen or Richard because we are the carpenters. 
Uh, if you're under 40, go ogle that. Chapter 2, verse 1, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So in this third vision, he sees Jerusalem, and there's a young man. He is so interested in Jerusalem, he's going to go out and survey it. But now wait, you've got to have landmarks in order to be able to survey. So verse 4, and another angel said unto him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a town without walls. How are you going to measure that? And this is their new city, the earthly Jerusalem in the millennium. That, that's what the Jews are interested in, Ezekiel 48, verses 30, and 35, 30 to 35. Our city is the new Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven after the millennium, Revelation 21, verse 2. But there are no walls around the Jerusalem in the kingdom, in the millennium, because in the millennium, all Israel is a land of unwalled villages, Ezekiel 38, 11. Why? Well, look, two reasons are given. Verse 4, because, number one, because of the multitude of men and cattle therein, and number two, verse 5, for, or because I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. The inhabitants of planet Earth will one day stream into that Jerusalem to worship Jesus there. Zechariah 14, 6, Psalm twenty two twenty seven, 27, Psalm 86, verse 9. So that is the nation. Okay, we've taken care of the nation, vision three. What about the individual? What about the person? Chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So this fourth vision reveals the adversary and the advocate. And you got the adversary standing at this person's right hand, which means he's on the left hand side of the angel of the Lord. And you know, all the time, we're just like this Joshua. We feel the weight of the accusations of the prosecuting attorney on our right. So either he accuses us directly, what he puts in our mind, what he brings back up to our memory, and what we have not and will not yet let go, or through our conscience, because that's operating all the time on us, and your psychosis is caused by you not handling your guilt according to what the Bible says. So he brings guilt. But you know, if you're saved, you're born again, you've also got to acknowledge the angel of the Lord who stands by to object to every accusation made by the adversary. Who is that angel of the Lord standing before the bench of God the judge on our behalf. Well, look at 1 John 2. Verse 1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if, but and if, any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that means, and this is our third point for study, that when you saved, you, you get saved, you get in Christ. You get put in Christ, and you get everything that Christ is. Everything he is is put inside of you. That means you get his righteousness. 
And as Satan stands at the bar of God, the judge, Romans 2, verses 3 and 16, he acts as the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 10. Jesus is your defense counsel, and he stands there to do one thing, and one thing only, to raise his hands and to say, Father, look at my hands. You see here the marks of the payment for this person's sins. His penalty has already been paid right here. And you cannot exact punishment at the hands of your son and then also exact it on the head of someone who is trusted in your son and still be just. You can't do that. He really, so he wins every time. Chapter 4, verse 2. And the angel said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I've looked, and behold, a candlestick, all, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon. And that would be a typical menorah. But wait, that's not all, because there were seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And when the Maccabees overthrew the Greek ruling power to... to establish a rulership in the land again for you know they had they had no they ran out of oil they had no oil for eight days they were without oil and that that menorah stayed lit for eight days even without oil and that is the feast of lights that's Hanukkah that is the feast that Jesus observed in the book of John so even though it's not an Old Testament feast uh, it's something occurred in between testaments that he had still observed but, but now, God's saying, look, you won't ever have that problem again. I'm just going to run a, I'm going to run a line to every single lamp on top of that candlestick because that shows you the Spirit of God answering to the Word of God as a continual resource to accomplish God's will in your life. So the people were aware of the promises as a matter of fact, they're repeated here in verses 6 to 10. You know what? I see a whole lot of Christians who have a Bible, but they are unaware of what God's words will do. Or maybe they think they have a Bible. They don't have God's Bible because they are not aware of what God's words will do. This is our fourth point for study. People today are unconscious of the resource of accumulating power as the Holy Spirit answers to the Holy Scriptures to fulfill God's will in their life. Do not be one of them. Now you thought Revelation was crazy. Let me bring you to chapter 5 because it's a chapter with two UFOs. Now I do not know if our government has seen these UFOs yet as they have certain other ones, but, but there are two in this chapter. Verse 1, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. Now this is not Lambert's. He is not sitting in Lambert's. The home of the throat rolls. This roll is a scroll with writing on it, so they would roll it up. Therefore, it was called a roll because it was a long scroll, and it does get thrown. Now second, second UFO, verse 7, Behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and 
there was lifted up this. This is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. He's already described a bushel basket, an ephah. And he said, this, this woman is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the bushel. And he cast the weight of lead on the mouth thereof. All right, this sixth vision reveals the presence of evil in our society. I mean, hello, somebody. We never acknowledge that. We never acknowledge the only very rare extreme cases, but we really don't acknowledge in, in society. We only acknowledge it in those exceptions. So in society, we call it mental illness. In society, we call it drug use. In society, we call it a psychosis. In society, we call it, well, they didn't get their medications. In society, we call it any number of things. And I'm not saying that there's not mental illness. I'm just saying we ignore evil in our, the presence of evil in our society. But here, there's also a vision of the word of God doing the work to destroy that over time. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked. Behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Now look at verse 8. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. So the seventh and last vision reveals our need for God to govern. And it shows us how that will come whenever the horsemen from the mountains of brass ride forth to restore order in the earth. Now I admit that the details are hard to decipher, but the Bible consistently likens spirits to animals with all their characteristics because your pet has AI. So there is AI in your pet. That's why your pet seems so human sometimes because your pet has instincts. Not just your animals, but the insects have instinct because how is it that a bee is able to find nectar, come back to the hive, do a little dance, shake a little booty and tell all the other bees where he found that nectar. Well, that's the spirit in the bee. And even the colors of these horses define and describe the characteristics of the spirit of the age, which the Antichrist will bring with him, and the spirit of the heavens that God will send. Because red or bay, which is red-brown, relate to war. Pale or grizzled, meaning gray horses, relate to death. Black horses, to famine and pestilence. Speckled, I'm going to say, are mixed seed, maybe a mixed breed. But there are two riders on a white horse, Antichrist, Revelation 6-2, Jesus Christ, Revelation 19-11, and when we come back with him as his armies, oh, we don't ride on white horses also, chapter 19, verse 14. So God will one day return in the person of Jesus Christ, and he will use every power, including the spirits of the God of this present world system, 
Even so come, Lord Jesus. And you know, all that's good and fine. Makes for good teaching and, you know, great teaching, maybe good preaching. But what, what is it that you have a vision of? What is being revealed to you right now? Are you in the valley of shadow? Jesus is the watcher. Are weapons being formed against you? Jesus is the carpenter shredding them. Are you trying to rebuild again? He is your defense while you do it. Is the adversary accusing you? Jesus is the advocate. Is the ministry of the light of the word of God dragging heavily? He is the resource of accumulating power. Has evil surrounded you? He lays down the law to which all beings have to submit. Is there a need for God to come and give you order? He sends his horsemen to govern your destiny. The power of the Lord of hosts is revealed by examining each one of these visions individually. But the purpose of the Lord of hosts is found by examining them collectively. So the first vision of the myrtle trees is Israel during the church age. Israel, both heaven's kingdom, Israel, the state, and God's people, Israel, the Jews, have been scattered in a dark valley for 2,000 years. But during all that time, the watcher has been with her through Rome's destructive activity, through the Catholic crusaders' murder, through the Russians' pogroms, through, through Germany's Holocaust, and through the Palestinians' rape and execution. Vision one. God preserves his word and preserves his people. Beyond the day of adversity is going to become this one shining moment when the four remaining Gentile world powers, I'm going to say it's going to be the kings of the east, China, Asia, king of the south, Egypt, king of the north, Russia, Syria, King, the and the Antichrist are all going to be defeated because that is revealed in vision two. But this is a cumulative effect because then, then after that gets higher and higher. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, vision three. And Israel, the servant of God, will be cleansed from her filthiness, vision four, because God preserves his word and he preserves his people. And at that point, she will fulfill her function as the world's greatest light bearer of the word of God, the oracles of God that were committed to her, vision five. And under those conditions, the law will go forth from Jerusalem to hold evil in check during the millennium. Vision six, God preserves his word, God preserves his people so that the kingdom of heaven is established on planet earth as spirits in horses ride from mountains of brass. A picture in Bible type, a medal that represents judgment and justice of God. Vision seven, God preserves his word and God preserves his people. I mean, this is some book. And now you can see why it's called the Old Testament book of Revelation. When Paul was feeling the difficulties and the discouragements of ministry in a society that was dead set against God's words, 
Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said in verse 17, for our light affliction. I mean, and this is after he's saying things like, we're killed daily, (laughs) us apostles. We died, you know, we're killed every day. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for, why is it light? Because it's but for a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding. Why is it only a moment? I mean, it seems like it's taken forever. No, in comparison to eternity, it's a moment. It's working exceeding an eternal way to glory. Well, we look not at the things which are seen with physical senses, but things which are not seen because they're seen by faith. For the things which are seen are only temporal. But the things which are not seen, they're, they're eternal. Things like that far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. Things like the riches of bearing reproach with Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty six, And that is the message of Zechariah in New Testament terms. Since, and this is our fifth point for study, you'll only be as strong as what you let God reveal to you in his word. You will only be as strong as that. That's why you got to play for the long term. You got to be consistent. You got to be consistent here. You got to be continual because it's an accumulating effect. And you got to build next Sunday on what he's revealed to you this Sunday. That's what discipleship is, really. You got to build on it. What I'm not going to say, you just got to even build on it. Because here we are the first of the year. Did you know that every year, it's every single year, probably every church, certainly, yeah, most churches I know of, in January, lowest giving month of the year. I don't know, some reason people love Jesus in December a lot more than they love Jesus in January. I don't know why. But, you know, all I say is tithe. I'm not a, we don't have a building program. I don't hire some company to send you letters. I don't write you letters Every week, every month saying, hey, here are the reasons you ought to give. I don't do that. I just say tithe. Do not be, start there, start with 10%. Do not be so stingy, you won't give God a dime out of every dollar. Because you will only be as strong as what God reveals to you in his word. And you think he's going to reveal anything? If you're not even supporting your own ministry at the church? that you're a member of? Because then, when you start hearing the inaudible and you start seeing the invisible, you will be able to do the impossible. Haggai said in a Vince Lombardi, John Madden tone, be strong and work. Haggai 2 verse 4. Zechariah says in a Tom Landry, Andy Andy Reid kind of way, You'll only be as strong as your spiritual vision. Now, if it's not practical, it's not preaching. So I haven't preached if I have not made this practical. So let me give you two applications. I believe these are becoming increasingly darker days for Christians and their kids. It will only get worse. Because if you're really going to be where you should be at as a believer, both sides are going to hate you. I mean, used to be one side just hated the other side. And the other side hated that side. But if you're going to, be, you're going to put God above all that mess, both sides are going to hate you. So you need to know today, the strength, the secret of strength is vision. 
So endure as seeing him who is invisible. But if you're seeing anything from God's words today, anything at all, then you've got to take that and you've got to use that in ministry with us. Why? Why? Because second, the proof of vision is strength. So endure hardness on the battlefield for your Lord. 2 Timothy 2.3 When I look at the task ahead of moving this church and yet still doing the work and, and, yet, and yet still now making a more increased budget uh, for greater utilities and bigger space and all of that, you know, I will admit to you, I do not uh, have the resources I don't have the experience, I don't have the talent, I don't have the skills. I am not good enough to mature you in your walk with Christ and to lead you to build this body beginning in a new place. A new beginning in a new place. But this church, I don't have to worry about that because this church will never be one inch taller in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13, until each one of us gets the vision for what we can start doing for God starting right here. Until we so claim the word of God for ourselves that we completely trust in it to do the work. We trust in what we have seen to do the work. Because having the true word of God, we're going to let the spirit of God answer to it by giving us accumulated power from consistent obedience over time. That's what we want to bring to your kids. Does that unseen thing motivate you this morning? Did you know that the thorns you crawl through this week become the very crowns that you will cast at Jesus' pierced feet. Are you building your life for Jesus? Are you building this church, His body, this church for His glory? Are you ready to study the Word? Are you ready to grow in your knowledge of Christ? Are you ready to mature and be balanced in your walk of discipleship? Maturity is what will bring you the balance that we so desperately need. In our society of bipolarity, you've graciously and patiently received an incomplete study of this book. But this morning, I think it's clear. God's truth for you in a King James Bible has to be applied so that you can have the strength to minister, or as Dr. King said, the strength to love. Are you going to be obedient to God's plan as proof that you receive his vision. If you've never yet met Jesus personally, I want you to do that. Salvation's a free gift. I mean, its roots are not in the merit of humans, but in the mercy of God. It is not in the goodness of a man or woman, but in the the grace of God. And grace means the finished work of Christ. What he did on the cross for you, the wounds in his hand, the spear in his side, the nails in his feet, operating on your behalf as you activated by faith in him. His, his merit, God's mercy. That means you've got to have faith in what he said. 
Whatever he said in John 6, verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Life after death, life after you die, an exchange of life for believing on him. And you can do that right now today. All you gotta do is pray. Just your heart to God, knowing that he hears you. And in that prayer, it is an exchange of life. It's a transaction that only you can make. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And you're not saved by praying. You're not saved by any prayer. You are saved by your faith in Jesus. But you gotta tell him that you believe in him. Just pray and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. But Jesus died for me. I believe that. He suffered for my sins so that he could save me and give me everlasting life for my faith in him. I want that life right now. I want the life that is in Jesus Christ. So I take Jesus as my Lord today. God, save me for Jesus' sake. Put me in Christ and the Holy Spirit in me and make me born again. So here, Jesus, I give you my life. And I pray, Lord, encourage us. Encourage us this morning. Some of us face a difficult week. As a church, we probably face a difficult two months. Satan, the adversary, will be opposed. And so many today have difficult straits and thankless jobs with pay that does not keep pace and hard circumstances and family life and other things. And the only thing that makes it all make sense is what we do for you together. I mean, that's it. The only thing that redeems this life is trusting you as our Savior and then calling on you in every circumstance. Why would we not want to teach our kids to do that? Even at their age, especially at their age, calling on God in every circumstance. Doesn't matter how small, doesn't matter how stupid. Because basically Jesus said, these children are the wise ones, you all are stupid. Let them come to me, my arms are open. They need to turn to me. So God, encourage us with this fact. And with the fact that when we get in right relationship to your true word, the words of God in English, in the King James Bible, and the Holy Spirit answers to our acknowledgement of that and its application in our life, and what he brings is the comfort of accumulated power. And then we can see in reality the invisible rewards that'll be both physical and eternal in your kingdom. So God, we thank you for that today. Amen.